Would you open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 11? We continue in a series, The Eternal Plan of God. I remember it would have been around 1980 that a man from New York came to the farm and I was there alone and he laid out these spreadsheets on, I think, like the hood of a truck or something. He had spent the last several years tracing what ended up being mine and his genealogy from Scotland in the 1400s to 1980. And I was kind of blown away by that and um, learned a lot of things from him and was really, I don't think that much about my own genealogy, but that was pretty cool. Um, when we take the, this part two, which will take a while, we, had, we dealt with creation through the flood. Um, we are going post-flood forward. And one of the things that we are doing is looking at our spiritual genealogy. So when we start with Adam, there's a line drawn from Adam all the way to Christ. When we come to Christ and repent and accept him as our Lord and Savior, then we are literally... In his blood we are washed and we are blood family. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11 says that at that point he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and his sisters. So our genealogy is being traced as we go back many years ago um, to Adam in 4115 BC. Um, we're going to see pictures today. Um, again, Mysterion, the mysteries revealed primarily by the Apostle Paul of telling us what the pictures in the Old Testament were for, that there were physical realities, things you could visually see, people that you could be introduced to in the Bible um, that were all pointing to Christ. So we're going to see a picture of God the Father in the Old Testament today. We're going to see multiple pictures of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament today and people that went before him and are actually types or pictures of Christ. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, help us to appreciate that you saw it important enough for us to know our spiritual genealogy all the way back to Adam. That you not only give us the Old Testament to show us year for year, but then Luke, under your inspiration, under the Holy Spirit, would give a genealogy from Adam to Christ. Um, help us to appreciate those who went before in Jesus' name. Amen. If you think about uh, being rescued or delivered from hell to heaven and, and imagining going back 6,139 years ago to Adam, there is the reality that there needs to be a faithful person followed by a faithful person followed by a faithful person until you get to you. That in God's plan, if he couldn't reach people in 2024, he wouldn't have a plan. And he has a plan to reach everyone. Um, and like I said last week, if we had a mural of every person who had ever lived, you'd be looking for yourself on there and what God is doing in Genesis is drawing a line and saying, these people are actually your spiritual genealogy. Here is your history. So you have there in your notes in Genesis chapter 5, we're not going to turn there in the interest of time, but in Genesis chapter 5, we have from Adam to the 10th generation, which is Noah. We learn something interesting in the opening verses of Genesis 5 that Adam was created in the image of God. And then a couple verses later, his son Seth was born in Adam's image. The fall had happened. We are knit together in our mother's wombs by Christ, um, but we are not children of God like Adam was when he is created. There is a need for redemption. So we learn that and we, get, we are given the generations from Adam to Noah, Noah being critical. There had to be a Noah. So God didn't force him to do anything, but there is a person who will stand and preach for 120 years and then the flood will come. 
and his name is Noah. When we come to Genesis chapter 11, we see multiple things. We see that the next disaster, in a sense, is the Tower of Babel. We have at the Tower of Babel, among other things, people that would stay in that area, which Abraham's family did. And we will learn about them later in the book of Joshua. We have exact dates through our Bible so that we can know exactly how long ago Adam lived. So you see in verse 10 of chapter 11, this is the account of Shem's family line, two years after the flood when Shem was 100 years old. So we know from Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 6, the year that the flood came and when the year that the flood concluded. So in Genesis 5, we have from Adam to Noah. We can learn now that Shem, through whom Abraham comes, was born, and he is two years after the flood, he's 100 years old, meaning that you go back 98 years into the building of the ark, and Shem is born. So Shem is actually born 23 years after Noah begins building the ark. So we are given these things by Moses and by God so that when we come to Shem and we look in Genesis chapter 11 and you look at verses 10 through verse 27, you have a genealogy that goes from Noah to his son Shem all the way to Abraham. So Noah is the 10th generation after Adam. Abraham is the 10th generation after Noah. And we have exact years given to this point. So we know that the year that is, verse 10, two years after the flood, is 2,556 B.C. Because he has given us every year to this point. So we know exactly when he was born. We're going to drop down to chapter 12, and we see the call of Abraham which is actually happening beginning back in verse 27 of chapter 11, but we're going to pick it up in chapter 12 in verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And here's his first covenant with Abraham. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Galatians 3, 8. Verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. So we are given dates again. We have the exact year that Abraham is born when we calculate from Adam to Noah and then from Noah to Shem and from Shem to Abraham. We have Abraham being born in the year 2166 B.C. Now Abraham is 75 years old. God has been pursuing him for 75 years. He has come to him in visions. He has shown him creation. He has given him eternal thoughts and Abraham has responded. He has responded to the point where when he is 75 years old, he leaves a wealthy heritage near Babylon. He leaves his family and his ancestry behind when the one who has been pursuing him, he's been responding to God. God says, come with me. And it says, very simply, Abraham went. So his faith, went from his mind to his heart to his feet, and his feet moved. So at 75 years old, this relationship begins. I want you to notice in your notes there, Paul writing about Abraham, the top of the page, Romans 4.16, one of the most glorious verses in our Bible. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Now listen to this. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. 
So every person who responds to the Lordship of Christ, and it goes from their intellect to their heart to their feet, and they set off and they follow the Lord, is a descendant of Abraham. Abraham is my father. He's not my Jewish genealogical father. He is my father in the faith. So he promises Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And then he advances the gospel from Genesis 2, 15 and 16, where God says to Adam, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you eat from it, you will surely die. You are free. Here's the choices. Here's the outcomes. Heaven, hell, you choose. He comes to Abraham, and Paul says he is announcing the gospel in chapter 12, that all nations will be blessed through you. Meaning that when a Gentile comes under the lordship of Jesus Christ, among many other things, they become a descendant of Abraham because they have a faith that moves like Abraham's. Turn to Genesis chapter 15. We had just looked when he was 75 years old. You have multiple markers in your notes there as to these years, 2,190, or 2,091 B.C. is when Abraham was 75 years old. Those dates are marked out in our Bible. In chapter 15, it is 10 years later. So Abraham is now 85 years old. He's been responding to God, responding to God, responding to God, and God has been leading him and leading him and leading him, and now he's going to repent. He's going to give the lordship of Christ his full submission for the rest of his life. So Paul in the gospel, Romans 10, 9 says, you must declare him as Lord, Kyrios, and you must believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So he hasn't been raised from the dead, but Abraham has the same offer in principle. You must confess him as Lord. In the Greek, Kyrios, in the Hebrew, which Abraham was, it is Adonai. Adonai means ruler, sovereign, master, Lord. So he addresses him as we read the first few verses of chapter 15. After this, and this is after Abraham had defeated the, the kings who took his son, or his nephew, I should say, as captive, he has met with Christ. He has had bread and wine with him. He is the high priest when he meets him, Melchizedek. And now we learn what he is going to become to Abraham. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. That's how he reached people who responded to creation before there was a Bible. And he says to him, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord. So we are introduced to Christ in Genesis 1. In the beginning, Elohim Eliftav. In the Greek, it would have been, um, in the beginning, Theos, Alpha and Omega. In other words, Moses is pointing out from the very first verse in the Bible that Christ is the Sovereign Lord Creator. So we have... Elohim, who creates everything. We have Yahweh, who pursues Adam in the garden in the cool of the day. Yahweh is our personally relational God who is pursuing us and wants to invite us into his kingdom. And now, for the first time, 2,000 years after Adam, we see Adonai, ruler, master, Lord. So Abraham professes him, as Lord. He calls him Adonai Yahweh. I knew you as Yahweh. You are now my ruler and my master. Verse 4, then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. Abraham is thinking that his slave will be an heir. He doesn't have a son yet. He's now 85 years old. Um, how are you going to fulfill your plan? So Jesus doesn't say to him, well, you must believe in your heart that God raised me from the dead because that hasn't happened yet. He's going to ask him, in a sense, to, to believe something much harder to believe than that. Verse 5. 
He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham declares him Adonai, my Adonai. He says, well, look up at the sky, the stars that I made. Try to count them. That will be your inheritance and your offspring through the son that is coming. I believe you, Lord. Credited righteousness. Paul describes it this way. God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that we might receive the righteousness of God. That's what Abram did. He makes a covenant with him in this chapter. Um, this is the covenant of land where he promises the land that we know is Israel. There was Canaan at, the, at this time. Drop down to verse 18 in the interest of time. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your, your descendants, I give this land from the Wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. So this is an example of progressive dispensationalism. From the Wadi of Egypt, which is a river, not the Nile, but it's a river, to the Euphrates River, where Abraham was born in Babylon. From those two rivers, that entire land will be your inheritance, Abraham. So when they went in with Joshua in 1406 BC and they conquered the land, they got tired of conquering. God had given them the grace to conquer everything from the Wadi of Egypt to the Euphrates River, and they got tired. So they have never possessed all of this land to this day. If there's no millennium, they never will. Because it will be in the millennium when this prophecy given 2,000 years before Christ will be fulfilled. Turn to chapter 17. We learn a new name for God, again, through Abraham. In chapter 17, he gives him the covenant of circumcision. And he says in verse 1, when Abraham was 99, so now we're 14 years later than the covenant given in chapter 15, Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him another vision. Uh, a theophany, a Christ coming in a visual way to Abraham before Christ is a human being. I am, the, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. I am all-powerful, all-omnipotent, everything. I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. We are chosen, Ephesians 1, 4, to be holy and blameless in his sight. Abraham was chosen for the same purpose. Verse 2, then I will make my covenant between me and you, and you will, you will greatly increase your numbers. Abraham fell down, and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations, Genesis 12, 2 and 3. You will be the father of many nations, verse 5. No, no longer will you be called Abram. You, your name will be Abraham, for I have made you the father of many nations. So he is in covenant number three now, and he's given him circumcision, which is a physical identification of a relationship with God. Circumcision doesn't save you any more than baptism saves you. There are many Jews who were circumcised. We will not meet in heaven. But it is something that immediately identifies a particular people with God, with, in this case, El Shaddai, God Almighty, Elohim, Yahweh, Adonai, El Roi, a few verses before this, with the God who sees me with Hagar, and then El Shaddai we see in Genesis chapter 17. Um, go to Genesis chapter 22, and we're going to slow down a little bit. Genesis chapter 22. I was thinking about a couple people in our congregation today. Trekker, you're one of them. How old are you, Trekker? You're the age that Isaac is in Genesis 22. 
And I was thinking about Wayne. I'm sorry, Wayne, but I'm going to disclose the fact that you're the oldest man in the room. How old are you? 79 years old. So Abraham in this moment is 39 years older than Wayne. Isaac is Trekker's age as this story unfolds. This is 43 years after Genesis chapter 12. We begin, um, well, we're going to read actually the opening verses of the chapter to give some context. Verse 1, sometime later, 43 years later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom I love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Wow. The child of promise that he was crying about in reverence to God in Genesis 15 at the age of 85. He's finally born when Abraham is 100. He's 18 years old now. He's been training him up to follow God. He's been teaching him about God. They've probably both interacted with God by this time. God says to him, Abraham, here I am. What would you like, Lord? I want you to take your son to Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And Abraham's faith, the reason that he is our father in the faith, drop down to verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As for the two of them, they went on together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son. Abraham replied, The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? So you, I want us to... We are visual creatures. If you see something, you can't unsee it. We are being given a visual picture here. This 118-year-old man is being told by God to sacrifice his one and only son, his child of promise, and Abraham cuts the wood immediately. He would have tied it and understand this visual. He's not carrying a few sticks. He's carrying enough wood to consume his body with fire. And they walk for three days. So he is likely carrying this wood on his back when it is transferred from the donkey to his shoulders at the foot of Mount Moriah. And I'm convinced just in my visual, and this doesn't have to be true at all, that Isaac is walking ahead of Abraham because Abraham doesn't want him to see his tears. And he says, Dad, I'm carrying the wood. You're carrying the fire. Where's the sacrifice? Verse 9, when they reached the place God had told him about, Abram built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. This is a 118-year-old man with his 18-year-old son. Do you see in this picture Isaac's best moment in his life? He is way stronger than his dad. He has figured out what's happening here. And he has to say to his father, your will be done. And that from that point, he would have been bound, laid on this altar, and Abram is ready to sacrifice him. We pick up the text in verse 10. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And I just even thought about this picture. In the proximity of 
where this knife would end his son there face to face. And they're looking in each other's eyes and they're both weeping. And they don't know how this is going to happen, but there is so much faith at this altar that they are moving forward. Verse 10, then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ himself, the only son of God, called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. His voice probably choked up. Verse 12, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abram called that place the Lord will provide, which was the answer to Isaac's question earlier, where is the sacrifice? Verse 15, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And as the sand on the seashore, your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. We are called, Paul says, unto obedience that comes through faith. Abraham had faith back in chapter 12. He repents in chapter 15. He is made in chapter 15 a promise for the second time. You are, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. He hears it for the third time, 43 years later. Your, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore because you obeyed me by giving your only son, your only hope of promise, all that you are invested in, you gave it to me, and because you gave it to me, you're the father of faith. So 43 years earlier, he said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you many descendants, and you're going to be the father of all nations. 43 years later, he says, this is why I made that promise. Because I knew when the day came for you to give everything that was most important to you to me, you would do it. And Abraham did that. So in this literal story, Abraham is a picture of God the Father. And Isaac is a picture of Jesus Christ carrying the very wood on which he would be sacrificed. But the one who actually carried the cross says, not you, me. You take that ram. You sacrifice him. You will be the father of faith because you have obeyed me. Turn to Genesis chapter 25. We're going to pick it up in Genesis chapter 25 and verse 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. The, the years are continually marked out. Daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless, just like Abraham did. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled with each, jostled each other within her, and she said, this, why is this happening to me? And God, Jesus Christ, comes down to earth not to talk to Isaac, but to talk to Rebekah. So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you 
will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, meaning Israel, the descendants of Jacob, and the older will serve the younger, meaning Edom, the father of the Edomites. Verse 24, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was hairy like a, like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So we have this marked out in time as well. You have that in your notes. It is now 2006 BC. We have the age of Abraham when he had Isaac. We have the age of Isaac when Jacob is born. We continue to move forward. Turn to Genesis chapter 28. We're obviously not doing an in-depth study here, but we're tracing the genealogy that God knew about before creation. Genesis chapter 28. Um, this is Jacob, who is now 71 years old, and he is heading to Padan Aram to find his wife. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream, just like Abraham, in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and, said, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. So he is heading to find his wife, which God has chosen Rachel for him. That will become more evident as we move forward. He lays down and goes to sleep, and he, he comes into a dream, and he sees a stairway from earth to heaven. And he sees at the top of the stairway the person who is the door to heaven. He is the gate to heaven. He is the only way, truth, and life to heaven. Jesus Christ is standing at the top of the stairs, and he's communicating with Abraham. Um, he would bring this, Jesus would bring this story up to Nathaniel at the end of John chapter 1. Um, reading on, we'll pick it up in verse 15. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. When Jacob awoke his, from his sleep, he thought, surely this Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head, and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called that place Bethel, which means house of God, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. So to this moment, Jacob has known Yahweh as the God of his grandfather and the God of his father. Yahweh appears to him at a stairway from heaven. He's standing at the top going into heaven, and he communicates with Jacob. And Jacob says, well, if you will make me rich and wealthy and give me all I want. No, he says, if you'll go with me wherever I go, if you provide for me food and protection and shelter wherever I go, then he's effectively saying, you're the God of Abraham, you're the God of Isaac, and you're the God of Jacob. And God begins his journey with Jacob, whose name would later be changed to Israel. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 5. So if we move 
forward in the story from Jacob seeing the stairway that leads to heaven. He prays for a wife and he prays for the circumstances that would arise so he would know that it is who God is choosing for his wife. And he gets there and the circumstances unfold the same way that he prayed and up comes Rachel, who God chose to be the wife of Jacob. He is tricked by Laban. He ends up spending 20 years in Padan Aram because Laban, when Jacob goes to sleep, he takes his older daughter and puts him in her in bed with Jacob. So he has to live out the bridal week of seven years for her, then he has to live out the bridal week of seven years for Rachel and finally marry her, and he is there a total of 20 years. Um, but that is God's choice, Rachel. And we start to see that as we go forward. So Jacob has already been a picture of Christ. Um, his name, Israel, would mean um, one who struggles with God and overcomes. But we learn something not too much later from the book of 1 Chronicles, verse, chapter 5 and verse 1. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. He was the firstborn, but when he defiled his father's marriage bed, his rights as firstborn were given to the sons of, jo the sons of Joseph, son of Israel. So he could not be listed in the genealogical record in accordance with his birthright. And though Judah was the strongest of his brothers and a ruler, a.k.a. David, and then Christ, came from him, the rights of the firstborn belonged to Joseph. Ask God who his firstborn son is. It is Joseph. Well, how can that be? He's the 11th child born to Jacob. Because I chose Rachel, and she's his firstborn. So Reuben, who is Leah's firstborn, defiles his father's concubine's bed. And he doesn't make Judah the firstborn, and he's telling us here, even though Christ comes from Judah, even though David will come from Judah, and Daniel and Isaiah and the prophets, that the rights to the firstborn go from the firstborn son to the eleventh, because in God's eyes, the eleventhborn son is the firstborn. So, now go back to Genesis 48. So we come to our fourth man in the story today, Joseph, who is also a picture of Christ. In Genesis chapter 48, We're going to actually, if you want to look at a couple of things um, in Genesis chapter 46, we'll just look at a couple things briefly. We see God speaking in verse 2 to Jacob, how? In a vision. That's how he communicates with his followers, either through theophanies or visions. We drop down to verse 4. I will go down to Egypt with you and I will surely bring you back. He's promising him. He's telling him that he's going to become a nation in Egypt and he's going to go in there and he's going to watch over them. And look at verse 4. I will go down to Egypt with you and I will surely bring you back again and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. So he is telling Jacob that before you die, you're going to go to Egypt. You're going to become a nation. I'm going to give you many descendants. I'm going to bring you back to this land. Wherever you go, I will go. I will provide food and shelter for you all of your life. You're going to go down to Egypt, but I'll go down there with you. And when you die, it will be your firstborn son in my eyes that will stand over you when you breathe your last breath, and he will close your eyes. Go to chapter... 47 and verse 8. As we are precisely marking out dates all the way forward. In verse 8 of chapter 47, when Jacob does go down because of the famine, verse 8, Pharaoh asked him, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. 
This is the last date that we really need in the Old Testament. So let me explain. In Genesis 5, we have all the dates from Adam to Noah. In Genesis 11, we have all the dates from Noah to Abraham. Abraham is 100 when Isaac is born. Isaac is 60 when Jacob is born. When Jacob goes to Egypt, he's 130, which means we know the exact year from Adam to Egypt, and it is dated on our calendars. So from here on, in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 42, Moses writes that they were in Egypt 430 years to the very day. So on this day, when Pharaoh says, how old are you? And Jacob says, I'm 130. Moses says, from that day until the Exodus is 430 years to the day. Solomon builds the temple 480 years later. And it says in chapter 6 of 1 Kings, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, he began building the temple on the 480th year from the Exodus. So from Adam to Solomon, we have every year accounted for. Not long after Solomon, Nehemiah would receive a decree that Daniel has already described that says it will be 483 years from that decree to Palm Sunday. We have the Bible marked out to 6,139 days, or 39 years, to 2024, because Christ marked the calendar from there forward. Now go to chapter 48, verse 3. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty, we see El Shaddai again. God Almighty appeared to me in Luz and in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give you this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now then, your two sons, he is speaking what is happening here, is Joseph, shortly before Jacob dies, he brings Manasseh, his oldest son, and Ephraim, his youngest son, and he brings them to Jacob. He sets them up on Jacob's lap, and he holds them like grandfathers do, and he is now about to bless them. We already read in 1 Chronicles that he would be blessed through Joseph's sons. So the, the covenantal marking of Joseph being the firstborn son in God's eyes is that he would receive a double blessing as the firstborn, and the blessings would be received through his sons. So drop down in chapter 48 and verse 13, Joseph took both of them, Ephraim, on his right hand toward Israel, Israel's left hand, and Manasseh on his left toward Israel's right hand. So the blessing comes with the right hand. They would actually put their hand under the thigh. So Jacob or Joseph is walking up to Jacob with Ephraim on his right because that will be Jacob's left. And Manasseh, his oldest son, on his left, which will be Jacob's right. So he would get the firstborn rights. But he's going to do something God is in choosing who his son will be. Verse 14. But Israel reached out his right hand and put it on Ephraim's head, though he was the younger. And crossing his arms, he put his left hand on Manasseh's head, even though Manasseh was the firstborn. Then he blessed Joseph and said, may the, may the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel, meaning Christ, the angel of the Lord, who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys, may they be called by my name and the names of their fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and may they increase greatly on the earth. When Joseph saw his father placing his right hand on Ephraim's head, he was displeased. 
So he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to him, No, my father, this one is the firstborn, but put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a people, and he too will become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he, and his descendants will be a group of nations. So he is prophesying over Ephraim, Joseph's youngest son. Yes, Joseph, I know you have a son named Manasseh that is the oldest, but this blessing's coming through me, it's not coming from me. And the God of heaven and earth has chosen for Ephraim to receive the rights of the firstborn in your home. And he is going to become a leader of a group of nations. So when Solomon falls into sin and Rehoboam becomes king, the nation is torn in two, and the two southern nations are called Judah, made up of Benjamin and Judah. And the ten northern kingdoms that form the, the northern kingdom of Israel are called Ephraim. So the name of the northern kingdom from God, the ten tribes who have been scattered for uh, a long time since 722 B.C., are named Ephraim, Joseph's son, which marks Joseph as Jacob's firstborn son and marks Ephraim as Joseph's firstborn son. Verse 21, then Israel said to Joseph, I am about to die, but God will be with you. This is a prophecy. And take you back to the land of your fathers. And to you, I give one more ridge of land than your brother's. The ridge I took from the Amorites with my own sword and bow. So when the land is finally conquered, um, many centuries later, and they go in, Ephraim will be the hill country, which will form ultimately the northern kingdom when they split. Jacob prophesies to Joseph that you will be buried there and not here, and he promises him that he gives him a special, specific plot of land within Ephraim that we'll see go forward in this story. Go now to Numbers chapter 13. So you're in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. I think Ephraim is the secondary reason that Ephraim himself is given the firstborn blessing. I think the primary reason that God tells Jacob to put his hands like this so that he can bless Ephraim is because there would be a descendant from Ephraim who would lead them into the promised land as a nation. So in Numbers chapter 13, when they're getting ready to explore the land, we drop down to verse 8. And from the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, son of Nun, Drop down to verse 16. These are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. Moses gave, or Moses changes, Hosea's name to Joshua. Joshua is Yeshua to a Hebrew. To a Greek, it is Christos, meaning Christ. Hosea means salvation. Yeshua or Joshua means Yahweh of salvation. He is literally given the name Jesus because he's going to be a picture of Jesus. And I think this is why Ephraim was chosen by Jacob over Manasseh because Joshua would be a picture of Jesus leading us into the only way, truth, and the life into heaven. Joshua would picture that as Israel's leader when he leads them into the promised land. So we have another person who is a picture of Christ. We've learned that he is a descendant of Joseph. 
and the genealogy continues. Turn to Joshua chapter 24. Joshua is well aware of his history. Joshua chapter 24, the last chapter in the book of Joshua. Joshua 24. He has given us a history lesson. We will pick that up in verse 2. Joshua said to all the people, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. This is the verse in the Bible where we learn that Abraham worshipped idols. He lived not far from Babylon, the city, on the Euphrates River, which skirts the Babylonian city, and his family makes idols and worships them. And it is out of there that God calls Abraham, and Abraham leaves. Um, verse 3, but he took your father Abraham from the land beyond the Euphrates River and led him throughout Canaan and gave him many descendants. So he is Joshua is taking us all the way back to Abraham in his last breaths, if you will. Um, drop down to verse 29. After these things, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance. So this is a town within Ephraim at Timnath Sirah in the hill country of Ephraim north of Mount Gaash. Verse 31, Israel served the Lord throughout his lifetime and Joshua and the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. And Joseph's bones, this is the fulfillment of the, the prophecy that was given by Jacob 484 years earlier. And Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the tract of land that Jacob bought for a hundred pieces of silver from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem. This became the inheritance of Joseph's descendants. So 484 years earlier, as Jacob is breathing his last breath at 147 years old in Egypt, he tells Joseph, you're going to go back. They're going to take you back, and I'm going to give you this specific plot of land, which he has marked out for multiple reasons. So where, where Isaac was sacrificed is where Solomon built the temple. It is where Jesus will sit on a throne forever on earth. This tract of land is going to be in the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom from its inception was evil. In fact, they were at war with the southern kingdom. They were thrown into captivity because they were so disobedient to God. But the gospel has to get to them too. And it's going to come through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Ephraim, and Joshua and forward. So now turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. So you have in your notes there, Joseph was born in Padan Aram in 1950 BC and died in Egypt. Joshua was born in Egypt 450 years later. They both died at 110 years old, and they were both buried in the same area in the Promised Land in 1355 B.C. This is God in a free will environment orchestrating things. I don't know how much it has to do with it, but the the number for perfection in the world when Joseph and Joshua lived was 110. 
I haven't done a study to see why all of that is, but they both die at 110. Joseph is the, the governor of Egypt for 80 years, and then they embalm him, and then hundreds of years later, they bury him in the tract of land that his father gave to him 484 years earlier. And in John chapter 4, we come to that tract of land. Verse 3. This is Jesus now. He left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? And we know this story where this Samaritan woman, who is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, she is now at a well on a plot of land that thousands of years earlier was given to Joseph. And this spot is marked. He is the only son who has a specific marking. And Jesus chooses every, every Israelite, every Jewish person, when they would go from Jerusalem to Galilee or Galilee to Jerusalem, they would go all the way around Samaria because they hated the Samaritans. And it says Jesus had to go through Samaria. So Jesus is making a beeline for Joseph's plot of land to meet a woman. Because in Samaria, which is Ephraim, they don't know about Jesus. They're hated by the Jews. He's a full-blooded Jew, Jesus is, who they're sure would have nothing to do with Samaritans. Drop down in the story to verse 39. What has happened, just in a rewind here, well, why do you want me to give you a drink? How can you come to a well without something to draw water? If you knew what I was offering you now, you would ask me for a drink, and it would lead to eternal life. Well, who do you think you are? How are you going to get me water? What are you going to use? And then she talks about her husband, and in fact, he says, you don't actually have a husband. You've had five, but right now you're without a husband, and she's like, you're a prophet. And he starts to explain to her from that juncture, no, I'm the Messiah. And I'm here to tell you that the Messiah loves Samaritans, the broken, the discarded, the sinful people. So verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. I would dare say that for the 12 disciples, that was two of the longest days in their life. They would never have gone there on their own. And Jesus is explaining to them, I love you, Peter. I love you, John. I love Samaritans, too. I promised your forefather Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, not just Israel. And I am here to reach these people, verse 41, and because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Yeshua, Christos, Messiah, Christ, Joshua. And this story that we began 400,115 years before Christ with Adam, we have this genealogy of faith that makes this line through broken people all the way through so that Jesus can go to the plot of land that Joseph, the true firstborn son, was given, and he can meet a woman who's a Samaritan, and he can tell the world through here, I love you all. Follow me.
So she is the woman that they talked about on the street corners. She is the woman who is the scarlet letter in our town, the forgotten woman, the sinful woman. And when Jesus reveals to her that he's the Messiah, I don't care what they think, I don't care what they say, the people I know have to know about him. And she is so bold and so unashamed to do what we often are ashamed to do that they're like, we better go see what's going on with him. And the story ends with, thank you for leading us to him. Now we've heard him. We know he's the Messiah. Heavenly Father, that the gospel would come from Adam to me is just like it coming to the woman at the well. So we have this reality that you do have a plan that leaves nothing and no one behind. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.